Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian. I'm on the phone with Ashvin, and today we are discussing The Changeling from 1980, directed by Peter Midak, written by Russell Hunter, William Gray, and Diana Maddox, starring George C. Scott and Trish Vandeveer. In this Canadian horror film, after losing his wife and daughter in a tragic accident, a man moves into his a historic home to find that the home may also be haunted by its traumatic past. And if you're new to the show, we'll just do some spoiler-free stuff for the first 15 or 20 minutes, but after that, we are going to transition into spoiler mode. You'll hear some transition music before we do, so once you hear that music, you should drop out and go watch this movie. I think it's streaming on Peacock and Tubi. And uh, happy 2024, everybody. This is our first episode of the new year. It's a good way to get started. I feel like we've been doing a lot of newer ones, and we just discussed 2023. So go back to one of the classic Haunted House movies. Um, And this was requested by a few people. This is actually one of our more requested episodes. It's requested by Bjorn T., Sheila B., and Laura F. So thanks for the request, gang. We're getting to it. Um, before we go too much further, I also wanted to mention that some episodes are falling off the podcast apps. I think I told you that, Ashwin, right? Yeah, you mentioned that. Yep. So, so some of the earlier episodes are dropping off. I think it's just because we're getting up near 300 now. So I'm going to try to figure that out. In the meantime, if you want to go back that far, God love you. You can go to horrormovieclub.com and click on the podcast tab and every episode is there. But hopefully we'll figure out how to get those old ones back in a mix. And, uh, yeah, Ashwin, going back this far, this is a film that had a lot of influences on the 2000s and 2010s horror. And so I wanted to discuss whether it's possible to wholly enjoy a classic film that was, like, carving out some of the tropes of its genre when we've already seen so many films that have done the tropes to death. And I guess part of your answer might depend on, have you seen this before? I hadn't seen this before, and that is something that I kind of felt watching this. Like, there's a part of this that felt kind of, uh, yeah, so familiar, given like a slew of films that we've seen in the last 10, 20 years. How much of it, of this was like pioneering uh, what we're seeing lately? Um, when you say uh, this influences a lot of those, um, are you talking about uh, the idea of like a movie, like grief horror? Is, is that kind of where you think this has the uh, influence or is it more around like kind of murder mystery or like, wh- what do you think, uh, wh- what was like new about this film at that time that's like carried over? I think the haunted house and supernatural film, like this paved the way for the conjuring franchises of the world. Mostly the, the supernatural happenings. Huh. Uh, but I mean, we, we had a bunch of haunted house films uh, before this, like in the 50s, 60s, 70s, right? Yeah, we did. But the, these, so we talked about this on the Conjuring episode. There was a, there's an episode or a podcast called Colors of the Dark. They did an episode way back in the day called The Haunted House Horrors, where they talked about this cycle of movies from the late 70s to early 80s that influenced all the other haunted house movies that would follow. And they mentioned... Burnt Offerings from 1976, The Amityville Horror from 1979, The Changeling 1980, The Shining 1980, and Poltergeist from 1982. Mm-hmm. And basically all these tropes exist in so many of the movies. Like 
a ball coming to someone from out of nowhere. We just saw that in uh, The Nun 2, right? right? In that intro. Yeah. The clocks stopping in the house at a random time or the same thing happening at a house Mm. at like the same time of night or day or whatever. Got it, yeah. A creepy music box, imaginary friends. Those are the tropes of haunted house horror that didn't necessarily exist now that they hadn't been done before, but... They weren't such staples of the subgenre until ah, this chunk of movies. I see. Okay, okay. I thought it was more around the structure, but you're talking about more about like the scare tactics that these movies brought up and like uh, seeing those more recently. Exactly. Yeah, more about the tropes within the films. And uh, you know, the structure is I don't necessarily want to spoil the whole movie, but I once we get to the end of the episode, it I will mention how similar the structure is to another movie we covered fairly recently yeah yeah i definitely feel that way <laughs> yeah uh but yeah I, I thought it was more like maybe they invented like a new structure for uh haunted house movies uh but then i thought like it's kind of similar to uh don't look back now or don't look now which <laughs> i was gonna say that it was <laughs> don't look now home alone at night <laughs> yeah uh we're like yeah, you start off with like something very tragic that's happened to the main character and then the story builds from there but yeah that that already kind of existed but uh, I guess it's cool to know that some of these scares were new for its time. Yeah, Don't Look Now seems more about the grieving process to me than The Changeling does. Yeah. There's, there's definitely some moments where he grieves his loss and we see that he's struggling with it, but it's more about the spooky happenings in the house he's living in. Sure, got it. Okay. Yeah, I missed the fact that that was the focal point here. Uh, had you seen this before? Uh, you missed the fact that this was a haunted house movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I totally overlooked that. I thought that was just a metaphor for something else. <laughs> <laughs> I had seen this before, but it's probably been like 15 years. Okay, yeah. And so do you think then like a lot of these scares are now like going back and seeing it, it feels kind of diluted then? You know, yes and no. I, I, I was worried that it would because I knew I had seen this before and I was like, okay, I'm going to be watching more of what we see all the time these days. But um, I'll get to more of it in the review, but I, I think some of it still hit. Some of it still worked, even though I've seen it done to death before. Mm. It's basically, does the film do it better than the, those that followed? Oh, sure. Yeah. It's probably the key question there. Right, right. Yeah, that's what was hard with art, uh, to go back and like look at the original and see if it's it still holds up compared to the new ones and if it was better. Yeah, right, right. Um, have you ever noticed, I noticed it in this movie and we, I don't think we've ever talked about it before. Have you ever heard of a mid-Atlantic or transatlantic accent? I haven't. It was, it's like the way Vincent Price talks Mm -hmm. or the way Audrey Hepburn talks, just the way people talk in old movies. Yeah. And it's just a weird thing that people only know about from movies. And I just thought it was worth mentioning on an episode it's basically like uh vincent price would say like uh sweet dreams my dear instead of like sweet dreams my dear oh it's like sure somewhere in between an english accent and an american accent and uh, the actor who plays the medium in this movie the actress she speaks in that accent and it just some of her scenes were so distinctive to me and i think part of it is the way she spoke mm-hmm and we don't discuss a whole lot of older films, and this, I'm not even considering this that old. You, you don't hear that kind of accent in movies from the 80s so much. Right. thought it was worth mentioning. It's something that movie fans are probably more familiar with than 
other people just because you're going back and watching old films, which is kind of the only place that this accent that still exists. That's so interesting because uh, this also takes place in Seattle. So I thought maybe some of that accent you're hearing is like this West Coast Seattle accent, which I always thought growing up, you ever watched that show Frasier? Yeah, I guess they kind of speak a little bit in yeah. that accent. So, yeah, I, I always thought they were like British or something, but then I found out they're American. I'm like, oh, maybe that's how people in Seattle talk. And then you see in this film, they talk with a, a kind of similar accent. But uh, you, you think this is all more similar to like a, it's called a mid-Atlantic or transatlantic accent? Yeah, oh. either one, mid-Atlantic or transatlantic. I think there's a couple other names for it. But I think it was thought to be a trademark of the upper class in the U.S. and uh, kind of a staple of the theater. Mm. That makes sense. And it was taught like in New England boarding schools and, and whatnot, but it fell out of favor after World War II. Yeah. And I think it was probably taught to a lot of actors yeah. in, in theater and films. So it's just interesting. It's it's a kind of a accent that's almost just created on its own. Like <laughs> just for fiction. Yeah. It's a, yeah, right. It's an American a weird American accent that Americans don't speak that way anymore or not i don't even think all americans ever spoke that way yeah that's fascinating Vincent price is from st louis sure <laughs> midwesterner <laughs> just dropping that accent uh all right yeah. that's good to know uh, I, I guess i shouldn't expect all seattleers to speak like that <laughs> just talk like vincent price <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's what i was hoping for when i got there uh yeah huge disappointment <laughs> yeah <laughs> Okay, but anyway, the uh, some background on the movie. Peter Medak, or Medak, he, uh, he directed a lot of films, not too many I'm familiar with, but he also did uh, some episodes of uh, big TV shows. He did an episode of Twilight Zone, he did a Masters of Horror, The Wire, Breaking Bad, Hannibal, and he directed Species 2. Oh, yeah, I saw that. I was wondering when we are going to hit that franchise. We really need to discuss Species. Should we make that a 2024 goal? We should, yeah. Okay. Let's kick the year off with it with that goal. Yeah, let's let's stick to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Russell Hunter, who wrote the story for this film, he says it was based on events he actually experienced while living in a historic mansion in Denver, Colorado. Mm-hmm. You believe it? Oh yeah, I believe it. Uh, it's a little suspicious because I think he's also a playwright. So what are the chances you're a playwright and you have a very interesting thing happen like this to you? Uh, I feel like you're. it's one or the other usually, right? <laughs> what does being a playwright have to do with... <laughs> I, I didn't, like like a crazy like true story? Uh, isn't that like a... Oh, that like I, I just happened to be a writer and this thing happened to yeah, me? Yeah, yeah. Usually sure. it's one or the other. <laughs> you get one <laughs> okay. of those. Yeah. Uh, if you're Either lucky. you're a writer and nothing cool happens to you yeah. or... Yeah, okay. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, I, I believe it, but what do you think? No, I, I, I've come to not believe any supernatural thing anyone says <laughs> which is kind of cruel because i have a lot of people i really care about who have <laughs> supernatural stories and i'm like oh you're just dismissing you're them my, one of my best friends in the world but you are a fucking lie <laughs> i don't believe a goddamn word <laughs> yeah it's, just, it's a weird uh weird place to be yeah you just have like no tolerance for any type of supernatural story <laughs> i'm so, as as i get older i have less and less of it yeah you know, I think there's two things there. There's one is like believing uh, th- that supernatural events like can happen. Uh, the second is like, do you believe that that person believed a supernatural event to happen? Uh, and so, yeah. Yeah, yeah you, that's the way of it. I don't believe they are lying, but I believe something 
logical is going on back there. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. sure. Uh, Yeah, so I don't know about this guy. Another question I had for you, though, on that is uh, these movies that are, like, loosely based on, like, true events or that's something that's happened to someone, do you give them more of a pass on the storyline for, like, not uh, meeting, like, more of, like, the traditional rules a movie might do or like arcs of characters or themes that might be there throughout because you know like the source material is kind of more uh realistic like yeah it's more it's more based in reality yeah no i'd give zero passes i think whenever i see something's based on true events i just get angry because (laughs) it's either not right and not true at all or they're gonna ruin a good story by being forced to tell the truth Sure, sure and this is not like the whole thing is true it's just like loosely Hey, I had creepy stuff happen to me at a place one time. So yeah, I made up a movie about it. Like sure. nothing about this is actually true. But yeah, and it, it is really cool that uh, they, like so unlike other films that are based or like supposedly based on real things, uh, they don't start this. They don't frame the story off as like these events happened or something, right? It's not right. Yeah, like because it's uh, yeah, it's so loose. Just like hey, some spooky things happened to me once, so I'm gonna right write this movie. Yep. Uh, the movie is highly regarded. Had you were you familiar with it at all, or was it kind of a? Yeah, I think I was familiar with the name, but I think mostly from it being requested on our sure right our thing. But yeah, otherwise, uh, no. It's got like a pretty big cult following. Yeah, I would say even like bigger than a cult following. I saw it called a cult film online, but I don't think of it as such. I just think of it as a an older film that was popular back at back in the day. Hmm. Um, one but that being said, it doesn't really have well-documented box office info, so maybe it wasn't as popular as I thought. It was certainly popular and well-regarded in Canada. It won Best Motion Picture and seven other awards at the inaugural Genie Awards, which were like the Canadian Oscars. Oh, really? That's like how big the Genie Awards are there? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, George C. Scott won Best Foreign Actor. Trish Vandeveer won Best Foreign Actress. It won Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Art Design, Best Cinematography, Best Sound, Best Sound Editing. Yeah. Cleaned up. Did have good sound. It did. It did clean up. Yeah. yeah. Damn. Yeah, I, I saw those awards, but I wasn't sure how much weight to give those. Uh, yeah, so neither am I. It's Canada. Yeah. I know. You got to discount everything by the currency rate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, just, I'm just needling you, you Canadian <laughs> listeners. Um, the film was also number 54 on Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments. I didn't dig into which moment it was, but... I dug in. Pro- I think it's the seance. I, I feel like that gets the most uh, press. Ah, right, right. Um, and director Martin Scorsese puts this uh, number 11 on his list of scariest horror films of all time. Wow. Yep. So, yeah, it was well regarded at the time. It got a Rotten Tomatoes critic score of 84%, users 79%. The budget was $6 million. The box office info was, that was kind of shoddy. It wasn't well documented. Box office mojo has no data. I saw it reported in one source as $12 million. Another said it was $6 million. So I have no idea how well it performed. Mm, yeah. I got to believe it did decently. Yeah, for all those awards it got, uh, yeah, must have had a lot of people come out for it. Yeah, but its cultural footprint isn't necessarily huge. It's not necessarily a household name. There aren't super well-known scenes from it. There was a planned remake in the late aughts that never happened. I think part of that is, yeah, it's, it's not part of a franchise. Nobody ever really touched it again. Yeah, it's kind of like a standalone film. Yeah, there are other things titled The Changeling, but as far as I know, they have nothing to do 
with the film. There was a very recent one, but I don't know what that was about. Yeah, I know. When I saw that, I, I had to check with you to see what year we were talking about. But yeah, it doesn't sound like that's a remake, is it? I don't think so. And then there's one with Angelina Jolie that's unrelated. Yeah. <laughs> that's like more of like a drama or something, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't have too much else uh, in in the way of notable background information on this movie. How about you? Do you have anything to add? Uh, the one other thing I would add is the director, Peter Maydak. Uh, I think you mentioned, oh, I don't know if you mentioned this, but yeah, he's a Hungarian guy, uh, became a British filmmaker. Uh, he actually suffered a lot of loss in his family. I think he lost his father, his brother, his wife, uh, like a few years before this film. So I think, yeah, as we go through this, a uh, loss, family loss is like a big theme in this film. And uh, interesting that you had a director who's kind of coming into the movie with that. And I wonder how much of that uh, was his touch versus like what was in the story. Sure. Yeah. Always an interesting question. Like, where is the... Where does the director's influence uh, take over and where is it just what appeared on the page of the script? Right. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, our Ohio connection, as always, comes from our friend Alex, who owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio. If you're in Northeast Ohio, swing by Jukebox for great food and great drinks. And Alex says, The Changeling is a supernatural horror film directed by Peter Medak, starring George C. Scott, Melvin Douglas, and Trish Vandeveer. Its plot follows an esteemed New York City composer who relocates to Seattle, Washington, where he moves into a mansion he comes to believe is haunted. Trish Vandeveer is American, and this performance earned her a Canadian Genie Award for Best Performance by a Foreign Actress. She appeared in numerous other feature films, often alongside her husband, George C. Scott, nice, just as she did in this film. She grew up in New Jersey and after high school attended Ohio Wesleyan University located in Delaware, Ohio. That's awesome. Cool. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of crazy that they were a husband and wife in this film. Yeah, I did not know that actually. I <laughs> didn't. Uh-huh. Didn't. I was kind of rushed getting the background info, so I'm glad Alex took the time to find that out. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny. Uh, I I think we see some of that in the story, like the way she's included, and it sounds like he would uh, have her in a lot of his films. And I I wonder if it's like. Hey, I'm I'm in this film and I'm gonna throw my wife in for this part. Like the, the minor roles that become these like supporting characters. Not sure how like flushed out of a role it is versus just can my wife like be in this movie? Sure, the Rob Zombie effect. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Getting a Sherry Moon in there, and her moon. Boy, I just watched Mother of Tears, which is a Dario Argento film from 2007, I believe. Mm-hmm. It's the third movie in his Three Mothers trilogy, and both his daughter and I believe ex-wife were in that movie. Wow. And boy, did it suck. <laughs> it did. <laughs> it was so bad, man. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he's someone who likes to cast his family. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought of Rob Zombie when I watched the film. Yeah. But yeah, we should, we should really cover Inferno, the second uh, one in his Witches trilogy. Oh, cool. Yeah. What's the first one in the Witches trilogy? Suspiria. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. right. Sounds good. Okay, man, let's walk through the plot, and we're going to spoil everything, everybody, but... Uh, before we do that, buddy, um, do you can you hold on one second? I hear my kid calling me. I think he needs some help upstairs in the bathtub. Oh, yeah. No, sure. Go for it. Okay. Be right back. All right. Hey, man, I'm back. Hey, how did everything go? 
Good, good. Everything's fine now. Uh, did I mention to you that I'm going to be sending him away to Europe for a few years? <laughs> I don't think you'd mentioned that before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so just seems out of nowhere. Uh, adjust your expectations for that. <laughs> okay. You won't hear from him for quite a few years. Well, uh, well he'll look a lot different when he comes back, I'm sure. Just naturally <laughs> aging. Why would you even ask that? <laughs> yeah, I know. Kids change. <laughs> <laughs> nice. The film opens on a family pushing their broken-down car through the snow in upstate New York. They push the car to the side of the road, and the father goes into a phone booth to call for help while his wife and daughter play in the snow. And as the father, our main character John, played by George C. Scott, as he calls for roadside assistance, he watches on helplessly as a truck veers off the road to avoid an oncoming car and crashes into his wife and daughter, killing them both on impact. That happens very fast. Uh, I think, personally, I felt like a bit more suspense would have helped, but uh, it gets us where we need to go and sets us up for the rest of the movie. What did you think of this opening scene? I agree. Just, like, really fast, uh, pretty tragic. You're right. They could have hit it harder if we had more time with them. Uh, like, yeah, even a few more minutes of, like, dialogue between them before just, like, the car's already broken down and, like, pretty quickly the, this accident happens and you, you kind of see it coming from, like, a mile away and it, it happens. So, uh, yeah. yeah, just r- really sad. Uh, it may be not so shocking because, uh, you know, it's going to happen. Like, the film goes there right away. But Yeah. yeah. It feels like they could have either drawn it out more and made it more suspenseful or made it happen even faster and been even more shocking. Oh, yeah. Like, right. this is kind of a weird in-between ground where it's just like, well, that happened quick, but not quick enough to, like, really knock me off my feet. Yeah. It's just, like, a little too economical. Yeah. It almost felt like it wasn't designed to knock us off our feet uh, because, like, it, it wasn't very gory. Uh, and yeah, sure. you're, you're right. Like we see it coming a mile away. So like, we're not like really surprised or anything. It doesn't happen like that fast. Uh, so to me, yeah, it felt like, uh, this is just like uh, a footnote for like the starting the, the movie or like where this guy's coming from, uh, versus like meant to have like an impact on the audience. Sure. Right. And that's such a weird thing about an opening scene is that sometimes it's done with the intent to truly like frighten or traumatize or set the tone of a movie and the atmosphere, but sometimes it just feels like a visual exposition dump. Mm, like, yeah, here's what you need to know. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and that's, I, I think that's kind of a shame. I think so too. Uh, I, I feel like better examples trying to like who do this, but like much better, like uh, the descent or ritual where like you do have like a few minutes of character building. It's not like starting like right there at like, Hey, this thing happens. It's really sad. But you are like yeah. a little more vested in it. It hits on a different emotional level versus just exposition. Right. Or then the opposite but similar would be don't look now, as you mentioned before. It's not really character development, but it's traumatic. It sets the mood. It sets the atmosphere. It sets the emotional oh, tone yeah. for the rest of the film. It does. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Gosh, that's another one we should really review. We should, yeah. I feel like we've mentioned it uh, maybe two or three times in the last year. Yeah. 2024 goal? 2024 goal. There, we got two of them down. (laughs) A few months later, we learned that John is moving from the family's New York apartment to Seattle, where he will teach music at his alma mater. We also learn he's a well-known composer, and we get a flashback of his daughter playing catch with him with her favorite ball while he sits at a piano. 
he ends up renting a house through the local historical society, and it's a stately mansion which nobody has lived in for 12 years. It's a huge house for one guy to live in. It really is, right? Is How it? many of those rooms do you think he masturbated in? <laughs> Within the first day? Or like, yeah. like, yeah. What time period are we talking about? Yeah. Like we're oh, yeah. setting 2024 20, goals. He's like, yeah. all right. All right. Day the, two. The foyer <laughs> is a week two goal. Yeah. The guest bedroom, yeah, three goal. I know, I know. It seems, uh, I don't know, something about that just seems very like, uh, like why did he need such a big house moving uh, on his own to Seattle? Like, why did he decide to like live in this mansion? Yeah, I think it was that essentially he had some connections at the university, people he knew, and they knew someone who worked at the historical society that w- they were basically sitting on houses that they kind of just. Sounds like they wanted to just bring in revenue on, so let's mm. just rent this thing we're sitting on and yeah, win-win. This guy gets a house, we get some money. Yeah, yeah, it's lots of furnish Oop. and heat. It's weird that it's a mansion, but whatever. And it yeah. had a piano in it, and that's, oh, yeah. he's a composer. So Right, right. So we start to learn something is afoot when we see one of the keys on the old piano play of its own accord. Oh, accidental music pun. Yeah, nice. <laughs> uh, he also hears a rhythmic banging. Damn it. <laughs> I snuck a few into here. <laughs> he hears a rhythmic banging in the house every morning at 6 a.m. I think Amityville Horror had something happening at the same time each night. Yeah, I think you're right. Like at 3 something in the morning. Yeah. Um, if not the original, then the, the remake in 2005 yeah. certainly did. Another right. one we should cover soon. Yep, Amityville, that was before this, right? That was 70s? Yeah, that was 79. <laughs> Nine. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you knew what it was. <laughs> yeah, clearly I knew. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's see. He rents this house. He's got the banging and the key plays on its own. He has all the faucets turn on in the house at the same time and he sees a boy's face submerged in the bathtub in the water. He goes to the historical society trying to figure out if there's any records of strange things happening in the house and one of the women tells him that the house isn't fit to live in, it shouldn't have been rented, and it doesn't want people. He finds a hidden door within a closet that leads to an attic bedroom that is totally covered in dust and cobwebs and this attic bedroom contains an old music box that still works. Uh, Burnt Offerings also had a music box. Hmm. An old-timey wheelchair and a journal dated 1909 in a child's handwriting. Uh, the music box is unique, though, in that it plays a tune that John himself had recently composed. Oh, I didn't get that it was one he had composed. I thought it was maybe like a fam- famous piece that he had played or something. Yeah, I think it's something that he just, like, had recently come up with, and the music box played it back to him. That's pretty cool. So he now becomes convinced that the house is trying to reach out to him and connect with him for some reason, and he kind of wonders if it has anything to do with the, the death of his wife and daughter. He begins to do some investigating with his friend Claire, um, played by Vandeveer. What's her for? Trish. Trish Vandeveer. So they start digging into this. And they find out that the family, a family lived in this house with a son and a daughter in 1909. And they have the whole second act library routine. They, they do some research and learn that the girl died by being run over by a coal cart. And he wonders, okay, yeah, maybe this is like what I thought. The house is reaching out because 
the girl's death is so similar to the death of my own daughter who got hit with a car. Mm-hmm. Things start to get especially creepy for him in the house now. His daughter's favorite ball falls down the steps, even though it should have never been upstairs in the first place. He keeps it downstairs in his desk. So he drives the ball to a bridge and throws it over into the water, only to come home and have the ball fall down the steps again as soon as he enters the door. Did that get you at all, or is it just more of the same tropes? Uh, it seems like more of the same tropes at this point. Uh, yeah, I wonder, like, watching it back in 1980, if this was something, like, pretty mind-blowing or scary to see. What, what do you think? Sure, I could see that dropping some jaws in the theater in 1980. And it actually still worked for me. I was kind of pleasantly surprised with this movie that some of the things that have become tropes were still effective to me. And honestly, awesome. I was thinking about it today. Like, why did they work? Mm-hmm. I think performances helped. But the sound design actually, too, was pretty effective in just the timing of the score and some of the other just eerie noises in the sound mix and the use of silence. It, it, it all just works really well and it's directed well too yeah did you watch this wearing headphones by any chance yes oh yeah me too and uh i think uh, i don't know if it's the setting of the house uh but something like gives this movie like really great acoustics and yeah uh i, I watched this on tv so i don't know if the sound is much different than how you watched it but uh there is like kind of like the almost like you know when you put a, a vinyl on and there's not music playing yet but like this kind of white noise static noise uh th- there was kind of like that running throughout the film i don't know if that's intentional or not but yeah it gives the film a real kind of like analog feel and uh, really cool acoustics to the sound design. Yeah, really, that hiss from a record player is very much there. It, the, it's a grainy movie, too. Like, it it feels like it hasn't really been restored to it's a great condition. I wonder if there's, like, a 4K or a Blu-ray mm. of this movie. Um, but, yeah, it's a, the viewing, my viewing experience didn't suffer for it, but there were a few times where I was like, boy, this picture really... <laughs> Could be better. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. But I, I, I think you're right in terms of like why these things uh, still were interesting. I, I think I felt like it was predictable because like we're so conditioned to, oh yeah, if you're throwing something out that uh, is like like a ghost thing, then like obviously right. when you come back, the first thing you're gonna see is that thing. Uh, but you're, you're right. Like there's still something unique about how they captured it here that other films haven't been able to replicate. Sure. Right. Um, it's at this point that he decides to like this is too much, and he hires a medium. And a seance is held by a husband and wife duo, not unlike uh, The Conjuring. Oh, yeah. Do. And as the woman tries to ask questions to the spirit in the house, she vigorously scribbles in pencil on pieces of paper as she listens to the spirit, occasionally writing down some words communicated to her by the spirit. And from these words, we deduce that the spirit is uh, of a child named Joseph, and he wants John's help. This scene with the medium to me was really well done. I think the performance from her was outstanding and made this a standout scene. She's got tears welling in her eyes and just has this expression on her face that's like really helpless and empathetic, but at the same time kind of blank Mm -hmm. in in an eerie way. And it just all worked really well. It really did. It was surprising like how effective of a scene like we've seen so many of these types of scenes yeah. uh, in the Insidious and Conjuring universe but there was something really special about the performance here the the music the the way the camera 
worked around it. I think like the way she's like scribbling on the paper too, like it creates like this rhythm and then like she'll like starkly write like the word yes or no and like it'd be like so jarring. Uh, like all of this like just worked together so beautifully. Like I, this, this was amazing. It really is a great scene and her husband's just like replacing the paper with fresh pieces of paper periodically. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, there really is a rhythm to it. And then George C. Scott is just sitting there with like, <laughs> the dumbest expression on his face (laughs) but like kind of in a good way where he's just like seems like he's trying really hard to keep his composure and he is but it's just like what's going what's going through that guy's brain right now (laughs) yeah yeah it was a perfect performance there (laughs) like he looks like he could either fall asleep or murder somebody like yeah 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 that's that's a great look a very well executed, very well edited, performed, directed scene. It really was effective. Yeah, definitely. Like I, I would say, like one of the, so one of the top seance scenes I've seen. Uh, yeah, in in all of the horror films we've seen. Yeah, yeah. Oh boy, that would that'd be a hard list to compile. I I don't think we'd remember enough of them. But sure. a top ten seance scene yeah. would be a cool episode. It would. Yeah, yeah, that would be cool. We got too many 2024 goals. We can't take on any other <laughs> no, one. We're gonna We've got so sauce. many rooms to masturbate in. We <laughs> can't. Kind of busy. Uh, John takes an audio recording at the seance, and later that night, after everyone has left, he listens back to it, and he can hear the voice of a boy. So when the medium is asking him these questions and writing down the answers, he can actually hear her, hear the boy whispering the answers to him. And when she asks the boy how he died... He says the word father and some other words that were deciphered during this uh, session include the words ranch, well, and metal. Hmm. And while he's listening back to the tape, John has a vision um, of being there in that attic bedroom when the little boy is killed and he sees that the boy's father drowned him in a bathtub. I was a little uncertain on how he, like, so it wasn't the boy telling him that that's what happened on the tape. It was actually him, like, having a vision of it. I, that's a good question. Like, did he see it happen himself or did we just see it happen so that we could see what John was deducing in his head? Right. I think John saw it. Um, Okay. Because I think later on he says even, like, it was like I was right there. I saw it happen. Oh, right, right. So I think the combination of the the spirit speaking and I I think the spirit somehow showed it to him. Got it. Okay. The spirit of the boy. Mm -hmm. Um, There was something a little odd about the little boy's voice. Did you find that (laughs) kind of comical and distracting? I did, yeah. Father! Yeah. Like, (laughs) metal! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. It almost That's... felt like a grown-up imitating a child's voice. Yeah, and then they, they, they I, th- I think they sample that back like later throughout the film, and yeah, it's it's, it's kind of silly. Uh, it's distractingly it. silly. That is like the my biggest pet peeve of the movie. It's just like this is a simple fix. Like, <laughs> go yeah. back and change this if you're about <laughs> yeah. to like put this out to to market. <laughs> change you'd be that like, voice. Hold up. One thing we got to change. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think kids, uh, I imagine they don't talk like that. They don't okay. sound like that. Boy, yeah. oh boy. Quick tangent. We're just exiting the Christmas season. I cannot stand Christmas songs where adults sing as if they are little children. Oh, man. I don't know if I've heard those. Like, like what, what's a Two one? Front Teeth, and I assume these are all grown-ups singing in children's voices, but like, <laughs> all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. uh, I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus. That's an adult singing that? Just awful. I assume it's an adult imitating a child. What wow. a weird fucking song anyway. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> I love Christmas music, but there are some that I just cannot stand. Yeah, yeah, some are very cringy. Uh you yeah, just anytime need to die. An, yeah. I, I agree. Anytime an adult singing in a child's voice. Anytime a, yeah, so some adults like to talk talk in child's voices, that's always annoying too. Just, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. To each other in a romantic oh, yeah. relationship. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What, yeah. He, if, as long as you keep keep it in private, there's there's no problem with that. Sure. You Just, never let anyone hear you do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. When John sees, sees this vision, he, he's overwhelmed. He starts to feel faint. He calls his friend Claire before collapsing while on the phone with her. And she comes over and listens to the tape. And she's in tears, basically, over what she's heard. Hey, so does she have the vision too, listening to the tape? Or does she just hear, like, the name Bathtub Metal? That kind of thing. That's a that's a really good question. I don't know if she has the vision. I don't think she ever mentions having the vision. I think she's just crying with the overwhelm of like what she's hearing and perhaps just like feeling for the child. Like mm. I now know what happened to this kid. Yep. Um, but while she's in the midst of this like emotional breakdown, her expression just goes blank and her eyes go wide and she is her gaze is transfixed at the top of the staircase. And John comes over and looks where, where she's looking and sees that the wheelchair from the attic has come down the steps on its own. Another scene where for me it's like, okay, nothing super surprising, nothing we haven't seen, very similar moments in the hundreds of supernatural films that followed. But again, the scene is done really well and it literally gave me chills no way seeing like a wheelchair at the top of the stairs yeah it's not just like oh uh, there's a wheelchair at the top of the stairs yikes but it's like <laughs> her face yeah and the shock on it and then him coming over and see again just a simple scene a, a trope that has been done and redone and was probably had many times similar things done before this but executed really well in my opinion yeah sure yeah. How about like, you though? Not kind of lost on you, or did you feel the same? Uh, no, I, I agree. I think technically done very well. Like, yeah, her acting, the score, the suspense built around it, really cool. I, I was a little like, yes, yeah, wheelchair, like, isn't that scary? But the the production around this uh, was really well done. Yeah. Sure. Sure. After this, we get a scene of one of the higher ups at the historical society calling a U.S. senator that we've been introduced to earlier in the film and letting him know that John and Claire have started to go through the files on the house. And it's at this point in the film that we're reminded that the boy who died has the same last name as this senator, and the house used to belong to his family. So it seems like maybe there's some sort of cover-up happening here. And as Claire and John dig deeper into the history via various side quests and montages, they discern that the senator, who is supposedly the son of the man who killed the boy in the tub, is actually not that man's real son. The senator's father killed his child, but made it out to the public that the boy was sent away to a sanitarium in Europe and returned cured of the ailments that kept him bound to a wheelchair. He was, you know, kind of a sickly kid. Um, however, the child was actually swapped with a child adopted from an orphanage. So he murdered his kid, adopted a kid from the orphanage, like let it sit a few years and then brought the kid into his life so that people could believe, okay, like he's been healed, he can walk now, 
And yeah, I don't recognize him, but it's been years. So all the while, the public was under the perception that this wealthy man had sent his son off to Europe to get well, and the boy came back all, all better and able to walk. But in reality, the boy had been murdered and another child had taken his place. Mm-hmm. And that child who took his place is now the senator. Is the Before I go into the justification for why anyone would do that, do you feel like this is kind of a lot? Like oh. a bit of a complicated story <laughs> and a hell of a lot for a composer to, <laughs> to act the sleuth it. and uncover? Like he had a woman in the historical society in his corner, so she was... You know, no stranger to this kind of research, but yeah, is it too big of a conspiracy? I guess, but it, yeah, almost just like, are there too many working parts here? Uh, too much to the story? Like, would a more basic explanation have done better, or am I just dumb and like, I was like, found myself not that I couldn't understand it, but it like took a little bit of stretch of the brain to be like, okay, this is what happened. Yeah, it definitely took me a while uh, to get it. I don't think it, until the end I fully understood because it's it's because it's making the senator out as like this bad guy when uh, yeah in in the story like he's not it's not even like him right he wasn't like the guy who killed I I feel like the whole time I was trying to do math because I thought they were saying the senator was the father that killed this baby and that's why they they're like targeting the senator. But uh, then I was like trying to like do do some calculations in my head and like figuring out yeah that's probably not the case and he's probably the replacement kid. Uh, but then he's not like that much of a villain then because he, he was just a kid that got picked up and adopted and replacing another kid. Uh, and I feel like yeah the the real horror here is like a, a kid was killed, not necessarily that like oh and then someone else like took his place and became a senator, right? Like it, it kind of like uh, pulls you away from the the real horror. It does a little bit and yeah they kind of almost it's like they're trying to paint the senator as a villain. Is he really like yeah. I? I don't know. Like unless we know exactly what kind of deal was made and what kind of words were spoken. Like yeah, was he it was idea? in an orphanage, so he was a child. He was under eighteen, right? And here was an opportunity to go live with a wealthy family and to have a family. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, it gets a little confused in like what's the goal and what's even the spirit of Joseph's goal. Yeah, um, exactly. Like who's he little, mad at? Yeah, yeah, right. Right. Um, yeah, no, that, that, that is really confusing. I struggle with that. And then we learn a little later that the, the justification for all this, after they find a will in like a hall of records or whatever, the dude, the murderer, his father was extremely wealthy, but wasn't going to give him any money. His whole inheritance was going to go to his grandson. So this guy was worried basically if the grandson in the will it says if the grandson dies before he's 21 the money just goes to charity and this kid was so sick that the dad was worried this kid isn't even going to make it to 21 and this money is just going to go away mm-hmm. so i want to kill this kid swap him out with somebody else so that i can get in on the money when the inheritance comes <laughs> so what is does that mean that like he adopts the kid and tells him like hey i'm only adopting you if you agree to let me have this money you get when you're 21. Oh, yeah. And the kid's right. like, all right, whatever. I have, I'm about to like leave an orphanage and join a family. I'll say yes to anything. Yeah, exactly. Or was the kid like, yeah, haha, money. Like, let's fucking do this. <laughs> yeah. Or did the kid even really know? Like, I know, right. Yeah. How much did he know about it like that? Uh, which I don't know if that's really answered at the end. 
Is it? Like, do we ever find out, like, how much, like, the senator knew about what happened? I don't think so. Mm. I don't think so. I, I just kind of, I guess I feel a little bit like if you're getting into, like, legalese in the plot of a movie, maybe it's a little too complicated. But yeah. I don't know. I agree. And it, this it kind of reminds me of, like, this becomes a, a murder mystery then. Uh, I, you were going to mention, right, like, films, like, you feel similar to, like, is this, like, The Grudge or The Ring or anything? Or what do you The thinking? Ring is what I was thinking. Yeah, v- yeah. Very similar. The whole plot lays, goes very similarly to The Ring. Like, yeah. I, I found out about a horrible thing that happened. There's supernatural stuff because a child was wronged. And now I'm on a bunch of side quests and researching to find out what happened and the more is revealed that you know the darker it gets and the child was wronged and hidden somewhere and yeah 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 and now they're adding the slayer of like a government conspiracy or something right or, yeah, right some kind of thing yeah yeah it does feel a little overcomplicated than it, than it needs to be it, it could have just been the child was killed uh this guy is like guilty of doing it and we got to like find uh, where this kid's buried and make it right. Kind of like what they yeah. do in the ring. Yeah, like maybe their dad was sick of taking care of this kid because he was so needy and sickly. And right. Sorry, I feel like using the term sickly isn't probably isn't very <laughs> very kind, but I keep doing it. Yeah, that, um, that makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, this pathetic fucking kid. He uh, <laughs> you know, can't I, get out of the bathtub. <laughs> as uh, as Claire and John. Wait, where am I? So they okay, they keep digging. They learn the location of the family's old ranch because you know ranch was one of the words spoken, and and they learn where there was a well located on the property. This property is now someone else's home, and the woman living there only agrees to let John and Claire in because on the same night that John says they held a séance, this woman's daughter had a nightmare that there was a little boy coming up out of the floor in the exact same spot that the well was located on the old maps of the property. Uh, she's like, all right, I gotta, you want to destroy the floor. <laughs> Let me think about this. <laughs> and then that night, her daughter has another nightmare. She sees the boy floating in water beneath the floorboards, and she's flipping out. And so the woman, then they like smash cut to a chainsaw in the floor, implying that this woman was so freaked out. She's like, yeah, okay, let's dig this up. Did you find that a uh, very like effective scare? The boy in the water yeah. beneath the floor? Not really, but it was it was kind of cool. How about you? Uh, yeah, I, I thought the build-up to it was really cool. Uh, but something about the production design around the boy in the water uh, just didn't seem too scary. I guess he looks pretty healthy to me. It, it uh, looks a bit more... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it looks a bit more like tragic than, than scary. Yeah, yeah. That's a good way to describe it. Yeah, he. I think they could have gone a little bit more like bug-eyed and like bloated and yeah right yeah if they really wanted to scare us yeah uh so yeah they they cut up the floor and they dig like 20 feet down and they discover the remains of a young boy and they call the police and (laughs) did it seem odd to you that the police were like do you know who that boy was and john was like no not really (laughs) not really and they're like all right cool so you randomly just dug up (laughs) this random woman's floor dug like 20 feet deep into the soil and found a body there randomly. Yeah, that was kind of hilarious. <laughs> no further questions. You're free to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nothing suspicious here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, John's still not satisfied, even though they found this body, because he believes there should also be a metal located in the dirt. But he's hesitant to tell this to the police, so he sneaks back onto the property later on once it's been proclaimed as a crime scene, 
and he finds the metal when he goes back into the hole because the metal emerges of its own accord from the soil. John then, like a psychopath, confronts the senator on an airfield as he's about to board his private plane, and he's waving the metal around saying, I have something that belongs to you, as security is like pulling him back. Uh, so he, security escorts him out of there, but the senator, once he gets on the plane, is clearly rattled, and he calls the chief of police and asks him to look into this John guy. So the chief of police shows up at John's house, and he's essentially trying to kind of blackmail John to give up that medal and drop this whole thing. So it's kind of clear that the police are in the back pocket of the senator. And as this cop is leaving, a very upset Claire arrives at the house and tells John that his lease has been canceled and she's been fired from the historical society. So... This corruption goes to the tippy top of the historical society. <laughs> All the way up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to mess with that society. Uh, it, that, that, that's an interesting reveal, right? Like kind of how many people are covering this up? Yeah, but it is. It is. And then what do they know? They, I don't think they really know anything. They just know like, hey, the senator wants this hushed up. Yeah. Is it like, I mean... So the senator really hasn't committed any crime here, right? And what these people know, if it got out, um, yeah, like I don't know who who that damages or like what laws it's breaking. I mean, the person who killed this kid is long gone. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not sure why well, this Well, the senator's wealth wouldn't legally be his. Even at that age, like if this is like 70 years later, suddenly they're going to pull his wealth out from him? Maybe. Make him donate it to, ch- to charity. But he's he's like a senator, so he's got like his own money now. He doesn't even, like that, that money, I feel like, is probably immaterial at this point. Yeah, I don't really know what the risk is. Yeah, yeah, it just seems like this huge conspiracy. I, I think the scandal, really, and the besmirching of the family name. Oh, uh, okay, okay, the family name, sure. Yeah. So after Claire leaves, John is looking in a mirror in his entryway, and it shatters while simultaneously showing him a vision of a shattered windshield with the chief of police dead in his car. And, of course, we learn that the chief of police died on his way home in his car on an accident that basically seems to have been caused by supernatural forces. So the ghost Joseph can kill other people, but hasn't done so against like the main person he's upset with? Yeah, why not just kill the senator? Right. Yeah, I know. Maybe people have to like be in the house or like touch something that's near him or something. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, there's some open questions in this, which you know, that would also be a legacy passed down to future supernatural films, where it's just like, (laughs) how does anything work? Yeah, you don't have to explain everything, right? Yeah, sometimes the ambiguity is fun uh, on this stuff. Uh, but yeah, yeah, this is like just a surprise. Like I, I didn't know you could kill people out in the real world, or yeah, even until this point, I didn't get a a, a malevolent sense from uh, the ghost. It felt like great. You're banging on some doors. You're running some taps. Uh, you're doing some apparitions. Apparitions. Uh, apparitions. Yeah. Yeah, you did some apparitions around in the water. Like it, it seems pretty harmless. Uh, so this is the first time. Like it feels like oh, maybe there's like some violence behind this. But did, were you getting the fact that like this, this maybe like a dangerous or a danger here? Yeah, it definitely gets more menacing as it goes. It starts out pretty benign, like, "Hey, I just want your help to like, I'm gonna fuck some some shit up." Yeah, and that voice, and, and, and that gets a little confusing, actually. Like, what is the motive here? Right. Yeah. Is he like being scared out of the house? 
Uh, yeah. It says life under danger. Uh, I mean, the scariest thing I think that's happened in that house is a, a chair shot up on a, on a, on a stairwell. Sure. Right. Yeah. Nothing's been super threatening. Yeah. John eventually confronts the senator in the senator's office, and he presents the medal and the whole story to the senator. He tells him his father murdered his original son and swapped him out for the senator, who he calls a changeling. He tells the senator that none of his wealth actually belongs to him, and the senator's getting emotional and insists his father was a kind and loving man. And John gives him the audio recording of the seance and says, here, here it is. There's no other copy. Here's the medal. He's basically like, dude, I'm not trying to blackmail you. I'm just doing what I think I'm supposed to do based on the wishes of this dead kid. And he leaves the senator's office. And on the way out, the senator warns him to keep his mouth shut or else. But the senator seems broken up about it. It seems like this is the first he's learning that his father could be a murder- murderer. He's basically like, no, like that's not my dad. How could it be? And you kind of see him wrestling with it. Hmm. Right? So it seems like. He had no time. idea. Yeah. I mean, he, he but, obviously knew he was adopted. He knew he came into some money afterwards. Yeah. I think he knew about some foul play because he got the call from the Historical Society and he called that like special police officer uh, who like knew to go and ask for something. So I feel like he knew there was some like foul play involved and this guy had some evidence against him. Right? Hmm. I don't know. It's unclear to me. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, because otherwise, like, why would he have done those uh, those things? Yeah, that's a good question. So then we cut to Claire. She's arriving at John's house, and the front door is already open when she gets there. She assumes John must be home because the door is open, and she hears his voice from somewhere in the house, and she starts searching for him upstairs. The wheelchair then appears and starts chasing her and sends her tumbling down the stairs. That's a little silly, maybe. <laughs> an all-out chase. chased by a wheelchair. Yeah. John oh. arrives at the house now, and together they see the stair railings spontaneously catch fire, like Joseph is burning the house down. And John also sees a vision of the senator, like, dutifully ascending the staircase of the house. But we see, as the viewer, that the senator is still in his office, but is having some sort of episode. So it's almost like he's, uh, in two what places. do you call it, like astral projected to the to the house. Oh, yeah. And uh, the senator has a vision of his father killing his biological son, and the senator collapses. And then John and Claire exit the house as it's bursting into flames, and it's basically, it collapses. And they arrive outside the senator's office just in time to see him rolled into an ambulance on a gurney, and it is clear that he is dead. And that's that's the end of the film. That's the end. Uh, yeah, so what do you think the senator was a bad guy? I don't think he was. Yeah. Even though he's like... I have, I, honestly, I just have no idea. Yeah. Part of me felt like this was just like two angry white guys uh, having having it out over like some old story that happened to them. <laughs> yeah. I think that's my biggest complaint with the film is just... I think it keeps me engaged. Like just the same way The Ring does. I'm like, okay, what's going on? Like the pacing is good here throughout this mystery. So I'm keeping up. I'm... I'm I'm into it, but the story ends up just being kind of like complicated and like, why do I really care? Mm -hmm. Like, again, like you said, the real horror is that the father murdered the kid, but we kind of learn that part early-ish on. Mm -hmm. 
And then the swap is the big reveal. Like the changeling is the title of the film. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, is that really the real horror that like he adopted <laughs> another kid and then seemingly was a loving parent to him? <laughs> right. Give him all I this mean, money. Yeah, greedily. I mean, it reveals the motivation for the murder, but. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it kind of like puts your sights on a character who like maybe wasn't that evil or like that that horrific or yeah, wasn't the one who did like something terrible years ago. Yeah, I, I, it just feels like it almost just distracts and confuses the main yeah conceit of the film, which is that or what should be the main conceit is that the house is haunted. There's a spirit who feels he's been wronged, and you got to help them. I, I you would just think once he found the body, everything would be right. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think uh, others have made that mistake, though, finding a body in a well and assuming things are right now. Like, uh, we've seen that now come Th- That's true. true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, so which, what did the spirit want, though? Like, exactly. for him, for the the changeling to die? Because that seems unfair. Yeah, and it also seems like it could have done it uh, that, like, a while ago, if it could do it to the police detective, uh, if, if the spirit could kill it, then why couldn't it just kill the, the other uh, changeling? Yeah, and do you think the senator genuinely had a heart attack because of seeing the vision? Like, it made George C. Scott collapse, so maybe it was just a heart attack, or maybe he somehow killed him. Like, and maybe the the metal somehow allowed him to kill him, mm. like that being in his possession. Got it, yeah. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah, I, I just, uh, that's a good point. I assume somehow it, like, got him to, yeah, actual project into the house and, like, killed him there. But, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's a kind of vague what happens yeah, there. Right, right. And I'm okay with some some vagaries. It's just a little more frustrating in this movie because of all the ins and outs of the mystery. Yeah, right, right. They really built that out there. Yeah. Unnecessarily so. And it, w- by doing that, I mean, Ilya, you talk about, like, how it pulls away from the horror of, like, the kid's death. Do you feel like the, the other thing that I feel like is missing that, like, something they set up but then pull away from, uh, the whole beginning where like you're grounded in this character who's gone through this like tragic loss and like that feels important for like the first half of the film but is that important uh in like the second half for like the the last act here like does that stuff matter at all i do think that we could have focused more on that yeah it's really just ends up being the mechanism for why joseph feels he can reach out to john is like the medium even says like that pain is your connection or his connection oh, to you. Got it. So, but I agree. There's a scene of him crying, you know, and and we get to know George C. Scott has a great performance, and I feel like we get to know his character like through that performance because he doesn't really have a whole lot of exposition heavy lines. It's not like here's the type of person I am, or here's what I'm struggling with. Kind of sucks that small talk. He's not great at small things. <laughs> yeah. But I do, I agree. It could have been a more of a part of the movie, like his grieving process. It does seem important-ish for the first 15 or 20, but then it's kind of gone as he gets fully enveloped in, in this Yeah, this mystery. murder mystery. Yeah. yeah. And and I feel like most uh, movies that follow this format of like, yeah, grief horror or whatever, and they start with like a tragedy, uh, a key part is like circling back to that theme at the end. I feel like the ritual does that. The descent does that really well. Um, but uh, yeah, this film kind of feels like it, it forgot about that and, and moved away from that by the time like it got deep into this murder mystery. And it's yeah. it's almost similar to like how you're talking about it does it with like the killing of this kid. It kind of even pulls away from that and becomes more about the senator and, and yeah. the changeling. 
on that note of like kind of pulling away from from things that could have been the focus of the movie to focus on the changeling like are there themes that you were able to suss out that you felt hit home or i was a little bit at a loss me too i was trying to draw a parallel between george c scott him as a character uh and a father who had lost his child to um (laughs) joseph's father who lost his child through murder though uh (laughs) yeah trying to see if there's like some kind of parallel there about like the grieving process of a parent who's lost a child but eh, that came up empty uh and and i thought that would be a cool option to like uh right there could have been an opportunity there where like maybe george george's character like felt like some guilt for like the uh, the you know yeah, leaving, letting his kid play on the side of the road, uh, on a snowy road after the car broke down. But they never really kind of hit on that. So outside of that, yeah, I, I couldn't really find any deeper themes here. What about you? Not really. I, I didn't know if there's stuff about like the lengths people will go in order to find money, or like the secrets behind the people in power, and mm. you know the dark history of every town like you know stuff in the town is named after the senator those historical societies it's all similar to like the fog where the the history of the town and those in power and the family behind so much of it has something to hide and Mm. it's built on lies and murder and stuff like that but yeah they didn't really hammer that home i yeah there's no theme i'm not to say there's no theme but there's nothing that really becomes like the emotional and thematic core of the movie to me. Yeah, I agree. I, I feel like in the fog, you get more of like a cult vibe. Like there's a group of people who are like trying to keep a secret here. There were like three people maybe who knew the truth. Uh, right. And did they even know the truth? Like, yeah. Or did they just know like, Hey, there's something to hide here. Yeah, exactly. Heads up. Uh, what about this? Uh, if you look at John as a character, He's an artist, like a composer, and he's facing off with the senator, a man of politics and money. Do you think, uh, and, and like the politics guy, the senator, like his, his first assumption is John's someone who's like after money and like it's blackmail. But uh, John's like, no, he's just like kind of doing the, the work of, of this ghost, basically, and, and like trying to get the truth out there. Has no like kind of harmful intentions or is like trying to benefit from it somehow. Do you think it's some commentary on like the role of artist versus uh politics or politicians to be like artists like truth tellers politicians are kind of like hiding things for the benefit of uh capital or whatever wow yeah like artists trade in truth and and politicians trade in lies yeah potentially there you go boy that's a i don't think that's it but (laughs) maybe it should have been that's a good uh a good um connection to make yeah, yeah. I feel like you you're being generous, but that's <laughs> that's astute of you. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting dynamic to put those two across from each other. But yeah, I don't think they flesh that out at all. Those two like barely have any screen time together. It's just like one scene. Um, uh, but I don't know. That's cool. An angle they could have like uh, gone into a little bit more. Yeah, boy. Uh, is there some movie we recently watched where someone's like, my dad used to say that artists use lies to tell the truth and politician use politicians use the truth to tell lies huh boy what is that f- something like that that's really maybe a listener will reach out and remind me what that's from yeah yeah i'm really curious that's an interesting quote 
Yeah. That, um, yeah. That was the only interplay I could see there. Um, yeah. Otherwise, nothing. Same. Same. A little weak on the themes. What do you think are the strengths of this movie? You know, at first I was like, wow, this film is slow. Uh, this is, it's taken a long time to get up, but then I kind of started to appreciate like all the detours it was taking to like kind of build up like this rich setting between like the character, the house, uh, the tragedy that he's been through. Um, so I think at the end of the day, I, I did like the pacing, uh, and I thought it like made for like a good setup. And then the camera work I thought was really well done. Like I thought you got some great shots of the house and like, uh, motions that like follow the characters around the house was really cool. And then obviously the seance scene I thought was just like one of the best, uh, like scare seances that I've seen in a while. Uh, what, what yeah. about you? I agree with all that. I also thought the cinematography was a strength and a, the Shining did similar shots. The Shining did it better, but still great here. Mm-hmm. And again, that maybe sets the stage for some of the camera work we see in the Conjuring franchise. But I think that the only other thing I would add is that the acting was really strong and like Got some it. of those scenes, like the seance scene and when she sees the wheelchair at the top of the steps, like those those wouldn't have been as effective without the solid acting here. Yeah, good point. And and as we mentioned earlier, I think the sound design really works in favor of some of the scares of this movie. At first, I thought, you know, these scares aren't that effective, like whatever. But then they, as things started to amp up, there were quite a few that, that really did get under my skin a little bit. And I think it is not necessarily because they are something unexpected, but be, something that was just executed well within the, you know, technical aspects of filmmaking. Yeah, I know. It's it's really cool when when like uh, you bring like high quality actors, great camera work, great sound design, like great production value. Even like you, you can turn those like pretty typical scares into like a much better theatrical performance. Yeah, and you know the, the there's the trope of actions themselves or like events in a movie can be a trope. But then all the things around it, like how it's shot, how it's scored, the rhythm of the editing around it, Mm -hmm. those can be like kind of tropes within themselves. Like here's exactly how it's going to be done and you know the cadence of this whole thing and you've seen it before. And I think what this movie does is it, it has those events that we've seen many times since, but they're not shot, edited, acted exactly like they always are mm. there's the events themselves are nothing new but How everything around it is done a bit more originally i guess yeah right right yeah and i know we're kind of going backwards in time and criticizing this for the things that copied off of it but unfortunately that's kind of just the way it is for a viewer who's seen who's seen it done a hundred times before even if this was the first to do it and i still think it probably wasn't the first to do it but Mm. just haven't seen a whole lot of haunted house movies right pre um pre 80s 70s 80s yeah and this era got a lot of credit too for like bringing the haunted house to suburbia and everyday people's lives instead of like some haunted mansion up on a hilltop but Mm -hmm. there's a lot of movies that are kind of like well it's maybe not the haunted victorian mansion on a hilltop but it's kind of a bridge between that and suburbia like yeah. the hotel and the shining isn't a victorian mansion but it kind of is you know it's like an exotic locale yeah in the middle of nowhere yeah and this is like right in town this house is but 
it's the his, this historic mansion and were haunted by the events that happened in 1909. So mm-hmm. it's still got kind of that Victorian wealth, tr- tr- like archetype of a of what a haunted house is. Yeah, I, I like that. It meshes like two time periods together in, in in a way that feels very accessible. Right, right, yeah. Really, the of these like movies around this time that really did bring the horrors to suburbia. Mm-hmm. Within the haunted house realm, it, I think it'd be like the Amityville horror and Poltergeist. Sure, right, right. And then, of course, Halloween, but that's not necessarily a ghost movie. Yeah, right. Yeah, I never thought about that as like a haunted house film. But yeah, Suburbia Fierce. Yeah, definitely. right. That makes sense. Hey, what did you think of, like, yeah, you call out John C. Scott's acting. What did you think George of- George C. Scott. That's right. <laughs> what, what did you think of uh, Trisha's acting? You know, I thought it was perfectly capable, the whole movie, but it wasn't standing out to me until that scene where she hears the seance and sees the wheelchair. Oh, sure. That alone was worth, you know, worth her uh, salary just for that one scene. Yeah. No, I agree. I think she gave a great performance when she had the, uh, like, option to. I, I just feel like her character wasn't really fleshed out. It just felt like she was there as a sidekick to help him, like, have someone to speak his thoughts to as he's, like, going down this research tunnel on, like, finding facts. Sure, that's right. That's true. She wasn't very very much a fleshed-out character. Yeah. And it's kind of like, why couldn't she have been? Because she's really the only other character in the movie. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely space to, <laughs> yeah. to develop her a little bit more. So, yeah, but at the same time, I do think the pacing was good, and we had a lot to squeeze in because there's a lot of knowledge to uncover, <laughs> so maybe yeah. we didn't have time for, for her back backstory. Sure. Uh, it's interesting, like, yeah, you talk about this conspiracy being maybe, like, too detailed or too elaborate or convoluted, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like in horror, like, simpler, obviously, is always better. I can't think of, like, a lot of great examples where, like, adding complication to, like, a story or to a murder or multiple layers to it, like, I feel like that's in direct contrast, like, something being scary or, like, uh, having an emotional impact. Boy, that's a really interesting point. Has there ever been a movie where adding more rules and adding complication made it better? Yeah. Like adding complexity. <laughs> yeah. Like there's like I've, heist films like where you have twists and stuff where right. that's fun. But I feel like in horror, that's kind of like the opposite. Yeah. I mean, adding complexity in terms of like people's motivations and stuff, especially when the film is itself a murder mystery and not a ghost story. Hmm. Like complexities in oh, motivations yeah. in like a scream movie or something like that or sure. a slasher, like that can make it better. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but like digging into a murder mystery and like finding out like different to find like the yeah. origin of of why a haunting is happening. Yeah, making that yeah, very complicated. I, yeah, I mean it's such a that's such a an, a story archetype now. It's like something's going on in this house. I need to find out why, and I'm going on a little research journey yeah. to figure it out. Go to the library. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, boy, that's something to really think about. When does yeah. complexity add? I think complexity probably adds to most film genres, but for certain horror subgenres, maybe it is true that simpler is better. Sure, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. It also makes me appreciate libraries. Like, I feel like where would half these movies be without libraries? Uh, yeah, you, 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 would, 
Yeah, you, nobody would know what to do with scripts. <laughs> I know. We, what happens in the middle of the movie? <laughs> Where they supposed to find if out? They can't script go book. to a library. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and roll those newspaper things. Yeah. across the screen. Yeah, that was something that, that, that I really liked. Like the attention to detail here on like his recording device as he's like composing, I thought was really cool. And then like yeah, the technology that he was using to look at articles. I don't know if they, that was like purposefully meant to be there to like showcase these things, but I thought it, it's a cool like piece of history captured there. Oh, cool. Yeah, interesting. Boy, uh, business meeting room drama and uh, corporate politics and then shots of old technology are your, yeah those are my gems your two things <laughs> yeah all right buddy speaking of old technology on a scale of zero to five old wheelchairs what do you rate this movie uh, I give this three out of five old wheeled, uh, wheelchairs I think while the film fails to follow through on its setup uh, I think overall it's technically really well made and it pays attention to details. It's carried by amazing strong performances and direction and centered around a well-produced scare, that being the seance scare. I thought that kind of gave the film its emotional horror that, that it uh, needed. Uh, what about yeah. you? Yeah, great scene. Uh, I think the film's mystery becomes increasingly outlandish as it unfolds, but it brings subtle yet effective chills and pacing that keeps the viewer engaged from start to finish. So, yeah, yeah. there are drawbacks for sure. Helen Burns, by the way, is the woman who played yeah. the medium and, and just crushed it. So really I do think that scene really amped up the movie. So, yeah, 3.5 for me. It's got its flaws, but it was it's still fun. And I, uh, I do think that that scene probably belongs on a, a scariest moment. So it's not like scary, yeah. scary, but it's definitely one of the better executed scenes I've seen in a horror movie. Same, same. Really well done. That caught me by surprise. Yeah, cool. Anything else? That's all I got. All right. Thanks for hanging out with us for our first episode of 2024. That has been our discussion on The Changeling. If you want to connect with us about it, go to horrormovieclub.com and click on the links for uh, the social links drop down. There will be links for Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can connect with us on any of those. And we also post uh, every Thursday what movie we're going to be covering next week on all three of those social uh, platforms. And we've also got a link there to our Discord server where you can hop on and chat with other listeners and horror movie fans. Uh, you can always email us, podcast at horrormovieclub.com. Our logo is done by Amy May Pop Art. So if you're clicking around on websites, go to Etsy.com and search Amy May Pop Art, all one word, and find some great horror art from her, including a Horror Movie Club branded coaster set with some cool Final Girl art on there. And let's see, what else? I think until next time, oh, we got a Patreon. So pay us a dollar every month if you want to hear a bonus episode every once in a while. And until next time, if you're worried your son is going to die before they can inherit a fortune, instead of murdering them and swapping them out with another child, maybe just let them die of natural causes and then swap them out with another child. Oh, interesting. That's what you have done. Saves you about one murder. <laughs> yeah, hey, that, that, that would have worked out pretty okay. And yeah. It might get a little harder because you couldn't plan the logistics quite as precisely, but yeah. you can still maybe pull it off. Uh, as the kid gets older, is it harder to replace them with the... Because I feel like kids, yeah, the six-year-old, like, you never know what they're going to look like when they're whatever. Teen That's teen. true. Right. If you, like, if he dies at age 20 and then you bring back another <laughs> very different-looking adult man. Yeah. That's him, I swear. That's him. And the, or- <laughs> yeah. and the orphanage no longer becomes, like, a resource you can... Oh, yeah. Tap into it. Yeah. 
Maybe you could just like show up at the orphanage with a dead kid. <laughs> Can I trade this one for one yeah. that works? You're getting an upgrade on this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's dark. <laughs> that is pretty dark. Sorry, I feel like there was some off-color humor in this episode. Ah, Sorry, everybody. <laughs> 